It's Your Dime, a straight talk interview series presented by Shift Gold. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. In this episode, I'll be talking with economist Edward Stringham about Federal Reserve malfeasance. Edward is an Austrian school economist and serves as the president of the American Institute for Economic Research. He's also the Davis Professor of Economic Innovation at Trinity College. He's the author of numerous articles and several books, including Private Governance, Creating Order in Economic and Social Life. In this episode, we'll talk about how the Fed messes up our money, the Fed-induced business cycle, and the impact of today's easy money policies. We also talk about the idea of private governance. Is that possible? All right, everybody. Well, thank you for tuning in to It's Your Dime this week. I have Edward Stringham with me, famed Hello. economist. How are you? Michael, thanks. Great. It's great to have you on the show. I appreciate uh, appreciate you taking a little bit of time out of your day. Uh, we'll start off with the standard question that I give everybody that uh, appears on It's Your Dime. It's the old, who are you and why are you on my show? This is your opportunity <laughs> just to kind of give your background and, and uh, tell people uh, what you're doing and uh, your credentials and all that kind of cool stuff. Thank you, Michael. My name is Ed Stringham. I'm an economist. I teach at Trinity College and I'm the president of the American Institute for Economic Research. I also edit the journal Private Enterprise. I'm author of Private Governance from Oxford University Press and author of numerous articles. Yeah, we're going to talk about private governance when we get into this. But first, I want to start off just by talking a little bit about a subject that uh, is particularly of interest to It's Your Dime folks, and that is the Federal Reserve. Now, obviously, we have to have a central bank to control our money and our economy, right? <laughs> no, actually, we've gone uh, centuries without central banks. The American central bank is only about... Uh, 100 years old, and the founder of my institute, the American Institute for Economic Research, Edward C. Harwood, was an early critic of the Federal Reserve. So some people assume that you need government to monopolize the control of money and do other factors. Well, many economists, including Edward C. Harwood, pointed out that in many cases, the government control of the money supply, manipulation of credit, can actually introduce distortions <laughs> into the system. Yeah. And there can actually create problems and make things worse compared to not having that central bank at all. Yeah, that's my position too. But you know, it is amazing that so many people and, and it's one of those things that kind of crosses the political spectrum you know you can you can talk to democrats republicans liberals conservatives and almost all of them at least in the mainstream are in lockstep agreement that you know the federal reserve is absolutely necessary if not we'll have booms and busts and chaos uh, and it almost assumes that there's not booms and busts and chaos now right sure exactly if you look at after the federal reserve was created we had huge uh, massive booms and busts, starting with the Great Depression, uh, as recently as the economic downturn from 12 years ago, 10 years ago. And so the idea that all you need to do is create this government agency and they're going to eliminate all fluctuations, I think it's just simply an assumption. And it's proven that they don't have the capacity, the ability to expertly control the business cycle 
as many of them had assumed. Yeah, why don't you um, just just real quick? And we've talked about this before on on this show, and I talk about it, write about it a lot at the uh, Shift Cold website. But why don't you just real briefly explain the uh, business cycle, the the Austrian perspective, particularly on the business cycle? Sure. What's now referred to as the Austrian theory of the business cycle, of which Edward T. Harwood was an early contributor, a contemporary of Friedrich Hayek. He said, and other people in this tradition say, that without government intervention in money, you can have the market setting interest rates naturally. When the government expands credit, prints money, expands credit, can actually lower interest rates. And even to a Keynesian economist, they'll say, well, that's great. As we lower interest rates, that's going to stimulate the economy, and we want to be doing that. And that's what a lot of current expansionary monetary policy believes in, that we want to expand the money supply, expand credit, and that will stimulate the economy. Well, what Edward C. Harwood and others in this tradition pointed out is actually when you have an expansion of credit that's artificial, the government lowers interest rates, people realize that that's not due to an increase in savings, and eventually it's people realize it's an artificially created credit boom. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people talked about that with the downturn of a dozen years ago. When the government lowers interest rates, it makes financing long-term projects more affordable. Things like building more factories or creating more mortgages. When you can finance your home over 30 years and the cost of financing goes down, more people are going to be able to buy homes. And you had a lot of people getting into the housing market. That led to a lot more construction of homes. And in a certain sense, you know, that's great. But it turns out once the interest rate went back up to normal, more normal levels, a lot of people who formerly could have afforded those homes, they saw those adjustable rate mortgages ticking back up closer to the market rate. And unfortunately for them and for everybody else, a lot of those people started defaulting. So realizing that there wasn't this real ability to finance it at market price, they could only afford it when the prices were artificially low. Once that goes back up, there were a lot of problems and that those manifested themselves in the housing market. People realized, oh wait, we can't afford this. And unfortunately that caused a lot of reverberations with mortgage markets that caused a lot of reverberations with the banking sector mm-hmm. in general, which holds a lot of these mortgage-backed uh, securities. The balance sheets of the banks were fluctuating a lot. They had to start loaning out fewer funds. And then that saw uh, mainstream businesses and businesses on Wall Street not being able to loan money to the extent that they thought they could historically. So the idea is you create artificially low interest rates, and then eventually that can cause an increase fluctuations in the economy. Yeah. 
So let's fast forward to today, uh, because conventional wisdom is that the the lowering of interest rates and this artificial credit stimulation, you know, that's supposed to be when the economy is bad. We get in a recession, we're going to lower rates, we'll pump up demand, we'll we'll fix the economy, and then we'll go back to normal. And yet here we are, we're uh, supposedly, we're in an expansion. I mean, GDP-wise, we're, we're in an expansion. And yet the Fed has cut rates three times this year. And uh, they say they're not doing QE, but I think they're doing QE. Why are they cutting rates now when the economy is supposed to be great? It's, it's a big, uh, big mystery to everybody. So we've had historically low levels of interest rates, and they were finally going back up at the end of last year to more historically normal levels of interest rates. And I was kind of excited about that because there was all this QE, quantitative easing policies for uh, the past decade, which I think were pushing interest rates to their historically low levels. And for the first time, okay, let's ease away from that and let the banking sector start working again. And the minute that happened, the president comes in like, no, what are you doing? When he was a candidate, he actually argued that there was artificially low interest rates. And he said that's leading to a false stock market, yeah, which is actually the shortest, most concise summary of the Austrian theory of the business cycle. Yeah, Trump's exact words. It's a big, fat, ugly bubble. <laughs> the president, once he was in power, he reversed course mm. and said to the Federal Reserve, no, 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 don't, don't let interest rates rise. Now's the time to lower interest rates. And it's actually kind of a confusing time for them to be making that choice because otherwise the economy is doing quite well. So why should we be having expansionary monetary policy or as they're now calling it, more accommodative right. monetary policy when other things in the market are going so well. Well, one of the things they point to, the Federal Reserve themselves say, well, there's certain headwinds, mm -hmm. including trade uncertainty, uncertainty about trade policy, specifically tariffs. So I think what they're doing is actually papering over problems due to disruptive trade policy rather than letting people realize, wait, this is not good for the economy. Instead, we've got this bad factor over there. And they're like, oh, don't worry about it. We're going to start stimulating the economy, which is a very confusing choice for them to be making. Yeah. It's almost like intervention begets intervention. <laughs> exactly. Once they have that power, they have an incentive to use it, even if they don't need to be using as well. All right, we're disrupting things over here. Yeah, but we can also do things to counteract that. Well, the more they do that, the lower that they push interest rates, even according to their own advocates, they say that they're potentially limiting their future abilities to do things once um, interest rates go down to, to close to zero. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that because that was actually leads right into my next question. Uh, the other day, uh, as you, I'm sure you know, Jerome Powell was up at Capitol Hill and doing congressional testimony, and he testified before Congress, and he was actually lecturing them about the national debt, which I find kind of ironic considering the fact that you know the Federal Reserve enables that very national debt that he's 
uh, scolding them about. But Ryan McMakin made an interesting point in an article a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he said that he feels like the Fed is operating out of a position of fear. Uh, do you think that's do you think that's true? They're they're kind of desperate right now. It's highly likely. So the Federal Reserve theoretically is independent of politics, but we know for a fact that politicians, specifically the president, appoints the right. chairman of the Federal Reserve. And you go back half century, there's been cases where uh, Federal Reserve chairman gets ousted. And Powell was talking about increasing, letting interest rates increase yep. at the end of 18. Uh, the minute the president comes in, no, 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 don't do that. All of a sudden, you see this reversal among Federal Reserve officials. Now, we can't read their minds. We don't know if they were going to be making that reversal independent of the president and all of the political criticisms. But maybe, right. <laughs> just maybe, there is a correlation that they reverse course because the president's constantly saying, Powell is weak, he needs to be more bold, cut interest rates lower. Right. So that is highly consistent with this idea that they are operating out of a position of fear. Yeah, I think, too, you know, at, at the same time, around this time last year, we saw the stock market tanking. You know, they had yeah, pretty consistently been pushing rates up for through 2018. And then all of a sudden we saw a, a huge dip in the stock market. And that also correlated with what Peter Schiff has called the Powell pause, uh, which you know ultimately is turned into rate cuts. But. Uh, you know, you factor that in too, and of course, you know, from a political standpoint, Donald Trump doesn't want the stock market going down. He keeps pointing that as as the crowning achievement of his presidency. So, yeah, I think McMakin makes a good point. I'll, I'm going to link to that in our show notes page so people can can check that out. Now, here's a question for you, and this is something that I, I find uh, interesting. You know, theoretically, we've had really, uh, even with the rate hikes that we had in in 18, we we've really had uh, over a decade of extraordinary monetary policy, loose monetary policy. And conventional wisdom would say we should be seeing a lot of price inflation with that. Why do you think we've not seen uh, you know, prices? In fact, the, the Fed has fretted that the inflation rate's not high enough, which that's, that's a weird thing too. But you know, why, why have we not seen the price inflation that you might expect? Well, there's multiple factors. In certain cases, countervailing factors. So some pushing prices up, mm -hmm. some pushing prices down. What's the net effect? Uh, it depends. In this case, the Federal Reserve intentionally switched to a policy where they were going to prevent a lot of this money from actually uh, circulating. And they did that by paying banks to not be banks, <laughs> paying banks to not lend out money. And so the Federal Reserve is still paying what's called interest on excess reserves, mm -hmm. which says to banks, hey, you've got all this money. If you want to just not lend it out, you can not do that. And we, the Federal Reserve, will pay you to not lend out money. Now, that puts banks in a very interesting situation where they could say, well, I could lend out to a private party, but there's always the chance that the private party is going to default. Right. I also am not getting hardly any interest 
from private loans because interest rates are so low mm -hmm. historically. Instead, why don't I just lend the money to the Federal Reserve, just deposit it with the Federal Reserve? The result of this, banks are not actually doing their historical role as much as they were in terms of lending out money. The result of that is because there's fewer dollars floating around in the economy, that puts countervailing forces on these quantitative easing, which is increasing the money supply. These policies are decreasing the amount of dollars floating around. And so it's basically insulating the uh, economy from all, a lot of these extra dollars. And I think that's one of the main reasons why we don't see the run-ups and uh, prices that we might have seen had they had ceteris paribus, no changes in policy, and just an increase in the money supply. Now they've 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 basically prevented this money, these dollars from circulating in the economy. Yeah. So again, our our theme: intervention begets intervention, right? Sure, I, I wish yeah. I could get somebody to pay me not to lend people money because I'd be really good at that. <laughs> it, it sounds great. I'm going to be a restaurant yes. and I'm going to be paid by the government to not create meals. Yeah. And well, I'm I mean, gonna that's, be... a, that's the American agriculture policy, right? We've got farmers that get paid not to grow, grow crops. So. Exactly. And those were implemented at the very worst time during the Great Depression. People were selling goods to the public when they need it. Instead, the government said, nope, we're going to pay you to not do that. And so all these farmers were like, okay. And it's the exact same thing with the banking sector. I think actually the banks would prefer in an abstract sense to be in a situation where they can actually be banks again, right. make make banks great again. Yeah. Uh, but instead, if they're say faced with, all right, lend at very low market rate interest rates or don't lend and just give that money to the Federal Reserve and get paid for it, it makes sense from their perspective. Sure, absolutely. All right, one more question on the Fed. Um, and now I'm going to make you put on your uh, your prognosticator cap a little bit here. And I know you're an economist. You don't have a crystal ball. Uh, none of us none of us do. But, you know, it's interesting if you look at a chart uh, of interest rates back over time and, and you watch it through the business cycle and you'll see the interest rates drop and then they, you know, they move back up and then they drop. But there's a stair step. So with each progressive cycle, the normal rate gets lower and lower. And this last time they got to what, 2.5, 2 I think. Um What's the end game here? I mean, at some point you're at zero. Can I mean, how, how do you see this playing out uh, economically? Or, or can you even say? It's, it's definitely an odd situation, especially in Europe. They have very low interest rates as well. In many cases, uh, this almost sounds like impossible, but it is possible given certain constraints, negative interest rates right. where, and the only reason why that's possible is when the central bank, the European Central Bank, says to banks, you are required to hold a certain amount of uh, uh, bank capital and bank reserves. And now all of a sudden, like, whoa, we've got to do something with this, even if we're losing money. Right. So it's really upending the traditional way 
of banking. We're gone from a situation where we're, I would argue, so far away from the natural rate of interest, the, the rate of interest that would be determined on the free market. And the reason, part of the reason is there's so many different government policies changing various factors all at once. And economists, including Federal Reserve officials, have to be looking at this and trying to make sense of it. And I think even the Federal Reserve officials don't fully understand the relationship between all of these factors. And you can actually hear that coming out from them. If you listen to a lot of their testimony, uh, sometimes they're very straightforward about this, that there's too many variables in play right now that they don't have experience with. And I think we really need to be recognizing that, that it's not the simple, here they press the lever, the economy right. goes up, oh, the economy's too high, okay, pull this lever. It's way more complicated than that. Yeah, I think uh, it, it's almost a sense that, you know, a recognition of the hubris of thinking that people, no matter how smart they might be, can actually control something as complex as an economy, which is really millions and millions of decisions that are being made by individuals. It's uh, it's right. really absurd. So, right. So something as simple as the government choosing the relative prices uh, for, for General Motors uh, between Cadillac and Chevrolet, most people would say, hmm. No, you probably shouldn't be doing that. That that needs to be determined by natural market forces. But I would argue that it's actually theoretically would be much simpler to control the relative price of Chevrolet versus Cadillac. You can say, oh, well, what is the cost right. of you know steel and all that stuff? Or what does the consumer really care about these things? And at least you can you could you know come up with a simple equation right with with interest rates and all these other policies you know we're dealing with a million a zillion yeah. <laughs> different unknown variables yeah so that leads a little bit uh backing up toward a more meta uh look at the world uh the book you wrote private governance creating order in economic and social life and uh, you argue that we don't need governments uh, micromanaging our lives. Um, of course, you know, the argument that you're going to get back immediately as well, you know, if, if private governance was so great, why don't we have it? So what's your, what's your response to those folks who say, well, that's impossible. We have to have government. We've always had government, right? Well, what I document in my book is historically, and right now, we have a lot of private governance. We have a lot of private rules and regulations mm -hmm. underpinning markets, making order in markets, preventing various problems such as fraud or counterparty default. These mechanisms exist at all times and they're extremely common and extremely effective even though most people do not know that they exist, they work behind the scenes right now, lots of private rules and regulations, lots of private governance. 
Can you give one example, just something that, that maybe is common that people don't recognize? Sure. So I can talk about the New York Stock Exchange. The precursor to that was called the Tontine Tavern and Coffee House. A lot of the early stock transactions, government didn't understand. They thought they were forms of gambling, <laughs> so they wouldn't enforce contracts mm -hmm. in them. So you would have these private clubs emerging, such as the Tontine Tavern and Coffee House, creating rules to be a member and saying, if you want to be a member of this tavern and coffee house, you have to agree to not default. And they had other rules, no swearing, uh, no standing on tables. And those rules were creating order within that club. Mm -hmm. In London, they had the same thing. There was something called Jonathan's Coffee House. They turned that into a private club. They would put the names of defaulters on a blackboard, similar to today, many country clubs you'll see on the board, oh, this person's dues right. are in arrears. And that creates serious incentives. You mm -hmm. don't want all of your friends to realize that you're not paying for your country club meals. And similarly, if somebody was a defaulter in the stock market, they would basically be banished. And right. the term they used was the origin of this term called the lame duck. Huh. Eventually, they created a private club called the Stock Subscription Room, later known as the Stock Exchange. And now the London Stock Exchange uses as their motto, my word is my bond. So you have a lot of private certification agencies making sure that market participants are going to deliver what they owe. And we see this with the modern uh, New York Stock Exchange. They've had listing requirements well before the Securities and Exchange Commission mandated them. We have modern financial markets, uh, New York Mercantile Exchange. They basically assume counter party default risk on behalf of all traders. And so if one trader were to default, their counterparty would say, well, that's okay, because I have actually made a contract with the New York Mercantile Exchange. They've assumed the risk on the behalf of the market participants. And the result of it is they make sure that people are reliable and don't actually default. And this is common not only in financial markets, but a lot of these same mechanisms are adopted elsewhere in the world today. Yeah, I tell people all the time that, you know, most of our interactions day to day don't involve somebody with a, with a bullhorn, as Tom Woods is fond of saying, you know, directing us in, in what we're doing. Most of our interactions are voluntary and consensual. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like we've been kind of given a snow job with that, that we have to have this centralized top-down uh, structure over top of us. But, but surely we need government for roads, right? I mean, there's no way we could, we could pave a, a strip of land without, without the government, right? That's right. It, it would be impossible. I mean, most people look around the world and, and they assume when they see something, oh, it must, must be done by the government. In many cases, it's actually already done privately. So yeah. such a high percentage of new uh, modern subdivisions, all of the roads will be built by the developer. Yeah. The developer says, I'm going to create this subdivision. 
And as part of me making these homes attractive, <laughs> they have to have roads in front of them, right. in front of them. And you can't just say, oh yeah, here's, go buy this house. I know you can't drive your car to it. And so in many cases, the developers will build those roads privately. In some cases, they'll give them to the government and then people say, oh, uh, government must have built those roads. No, yeah. incorrect. In other cases, you'll have a private community which uh, retains ownership and maintains those roads. And that's very obviously clear uh, with many uh, commercial developments, right. office parks, parking lots, shopping malls with parking lots. All of this is paved privately. Yeah. And we can apply this to uh, you know all sorts of things. The uh, Charles River Bridge in Boston, which is one of the most famous bridges of all time, was built by the Charles River Bridge Corporation. Mm -hmm. And there's just time and time again people doing things privately without government control. Simple things where people interact all the time. Uh, you don't need these people like peering down and saying, don't do that, don't mm -hmm. do that. People figure out a way to do it on their own. Yeah. Well, people need to check out the book, Private Governance, Creating Order in the Economic and Social Life. I'll link to that on the show notes page so people can, uh, can check it out. Um, one more question. This is, this is my, my go-to question. I've asked everybody who has ever been on this show, this question, if I start having repeat guests, I'm going to have to come up with a new one, but so th this is important. Okay. So make sure you get this right. When you're typing and you're typing on a computer, do you put two spaces after a period in a <laughs> Put, if you have Microsoft word, putting two spaces after the period is immoral. Yes, you're welcome back on this show anytime. <laughs> that is the correct answer. Uh, it drives me crazy. I'm, I do a lot of editing and, and thank goodness though for Word when people do do that, you can do- Oh, do Microsoft that. Word is the greatest yeah, thing ever. Can... I, I, I wake up and think, oh, I'm so grateful that Microsoft Word doesn't require me to put in that extra <laughs> space and they can do it automatically government mandated that right <laughs> well okay well i appreciate you taking the time to be on the show before we go why don't you let people know where they can find all things edward stringham so uh website uh social media whatever you want people to check out to follow your work a lot of my research and articles and videos and news appearances you can check out at american institute for economic research website a i e r dot org including with our youtube channel mm -hmm. where they upload most of my television appearances i was looking at institute. that today there's a lot of stuff on there a lot of thank stuff. you so much michael all right well we'll put that on the show notes page and again thank you so much for uh providing your insight and uh we'll have you back on again since you gave the correct answer about the uh the spacing <laughs> <laughs> thank you all right You've been watching It's Your Dime, an interview series presented by Shift Gold. For more information on investing in gold and silver, talk to a Shift Gold precious metal specialist today at 1-888-GOLD-160. That's 1-888-465-3160.
or visit us on the web at shiftgold.com. You can keep up with all of the latest precious metals news at shiftgold.com news. And tune in each week to the Shift Gold Friday Gold Wrap Podcast. This is your host, Mike Meharry. I appreciate you watching, and I'll talk to you again next time.